0: join the conversation call buck toll free at 844 900 buck that's 844 900 2825 sharp mind strong voice buck Sexton. jihad abroad and deep state at home we have some problems to discuss today my friends uh, my uh, fellow patriots we've got we've got a lot to get into here Uh, We're still finding out details about what happened in London, about the London Bridge attack. Uh, You have people slaughtered on the streets. Uh, You have many wounded. And we just now have the third attacker named. we had already heard about uh, Rashid Redwan and Quram Butt, But now Yusuf Zagba is the third individual who has been mentioned in that attack that uh, killed seven and wounded uh, 50. Uh, this is one of those stories where you you say to yourself, how can this be? Let me just read to you from the Associated Press here. An Ita- so Zagba, by the way, was born in Morocco, and he lived in Italy for a while and made his way to the United Kingdom. Uh, so well, may- maybe there could have been some vetting done here that would have been useful to uh, stop this guy but he was not a a talented uh liar that much is for sure zagba according to an italian prosecutor told authorities after being stopped last year in bologna in italy at the airport that he quote wanted to be a terrorist but then quickly corrected himself now i i will just ask you my friends we all have our off days we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. How many of you have been at the airport and asked a straightforward question by a customs officer or an officer of the law in any capacity? You were like, well, I want to be a terrorist. I mean, I'm going on vacation. I don't think that's ever happened to you. This would it would seem to me be grounds to flag somebody, uh, especially when they had already been flagged because he was traveling on a one way ticket to Turkey, only had a backpack as l- luggage, young, military-aged male of Arab-Muslim descent, and, he, yeah, he told them initially, when they stopped him, that he wanted to be a terrorist, and then they're like, well, he changed his mind, so I guess, it, I guess it's okay. And they let him go, and they didn't follow him, and now we have people, many people dead, many more wounded in a horrific terrorist attack. We're still finding out details about that attack. And, and, oh, there's another one. You may have seen the initial headlines. Police officer attacked outside of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, one of the most famous tourist attractions, and, of course, a, a holy site for those of us who are Christians, but it is also just a place people go to see because it's so beautiful, one of the most famous sites in the Western world, in the world. Notre Dame Cathedral. And uh, how many of us thought to ourselves, aha, yeah, I wonder what this one's all about. And before you could finish that sentence or answer your own question, which I think we all could, the hammer-wielding maniac who attacked a police officer and was shot in the neck, some quick work by the French police there, uh, yelled out, this is for Syria. Now, I know there are some networks that will have questions here about what the motive is. I mean, the guy screamed, this is for Syria, but let's not jump to conclusions. You know, uh, He yelled that he, he attacked one officer. Another officer shot him uh, as a result. And he screamed, this is for Syria. Uh, this is what we know about him so far. Uh, so a, a terrorist attack, it would seem, in Paris as well, right? But that's not even all of it. In Toronto... This got very little press today. I guess there's just there's just too much jihadist terrorism going on to fit it all on the internet. In Toronto, a, a woman was uh, running around with an ISIS bandana on. This is according to the Toronto Sun. It's a legit paper up north, as far as I understand it. Running around with an ISIS bandana, swinging a golf club at employees while screaming "Allahu Akbar." Uh. So, now, maybe maybe she was just having a really bad day, but yet again, somebody running around screaming the chant, known to be yelled. I know it also just means God is great and people say it all the time, but often used by jihadist terrorists right before they either engage in an attack or hit the detonator on a suicide vest. And this woman's running around yelling, Allahu Akbar, hitting people with a golf club. Now... Uh, She also pulled out a knife, by the way. So she may have had fatal uh, or she may have had murderous intent. Uh, But that that doesn't even rate right now that that doesn't even get attention. A woman running around for no reason and trying to uh, beat and stab people yelling Allahu Akbar in Canada. Because we have to first deal with the guy who is attacking a police officer outside Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, screaming this is for Syria. And we also have to find out about the third guy who was part of a mass murder, stabbing, running people over spree in London at London Bridge and in surrounding pubs and on the street. And we all know that that was part of the jihad, been claimed by the Islamic State and the third individual who's been named now was uh, such a such a, a slick operative for the terrorist cause that he announced to authorities that he wanted to be a terrorist on his way to Turkey, which is the gateway for fighters into the Islamic state. what What are we supposed to make of all this? Uh, that this is I, I can tell you what the what liberals would want you to believe that this is uh, overhyped or this is all a coincidence. Uh, This is a a problem of crime. This is a problem of poverty. This is all of which are just lies. But part of the the strategy of the left in dealing with jihadist terrorism is just to keep repeating the variations of the same lies so often that it wears down our resistance to it, that you just eventually concede. You're like, oh, okay, fine. Maybe it is about a lack of access to good jobs or or maybe it is about U.S. foreign policy or or this is a perversion of Islam that has nothing to do with the actual text or you know any number of the arguments they offer up. They just keep, even though they are shot down by those of us who are familiar with them and know the truth of jihadist terrorism, the other side assumes, often correctly, that if they just stay on message, keep repeating the same stuff and, of course, throw out Wants and accusations of Islamophobia and bigotry and racism whenever we're talking about terrorism, that there will be both a a a disinformation and a silencing effect. The disinformation is the already discredited arguments out there about the root causes of terrorism. What does jihad Really, what do the jihadists really want? What are they trying to accomplish? Is this a bigger problem than other forms of terrorism? Is there state sponsorship for this? Is this a global issue? Are there millions upon millions of people who do not necessarily engage in jihad but are supportive of it? Does there need to be a radical reformation from within the Islamic faith? You know, th- those are that's all what we need to be talking about. And the disinformation tries to stop us from getting there, right? Oh, it's it's about poverty or it's every ideology has its terrorists or whatever it may be. And then, of course, there's the silencing, which is this is about Islamophobia. This is about bigotry. How dare you? you know, um, and and they, they want this to just become the new normal. Which is pretty astonishing because I'm sure many of you listening are old enough to remember a time when there was nothing normal about this. There was no expectation that we would be in a constant cycle of people who are from within the Islamic faith and uh, radicalize and then become terrorists and murder innocent people at random, as long as they are, well, they can be Muslims, they can be Westerners, they can be anybody. They just want to murder people, because that makes the case. Because ultimately jihadism, for all of its pretensions to being really a colonial Empire, A colonialist enterprise. It wants to colonize the rest of the world, seeking to use the Middle East as its base of operations and then expand much more broadly. You could go back to the Hadith about the Black Banners coming out of Afghanistan and Khorasan and ending up in Jerusalem and there being this great war, but they seek to have control over the whole world. And while those grandiose pretensions are preposterous to us, they still act on them. They still take that as a serious strategy. But in reality, it's just a death cult. It is dressed up nihilism, it's evil with a pseudo religious justification. But unfortunately, it is widespread and it won't go away no matter how much we wish it would. This is a, as I have said, multi-generational, multi-century fight. I don't know if it's a fight that ever entirely goes away, but we would like to be in a place where we don't have to worry about being stabbed while we're having a beer on the street. We don't have to worry about a plane running into a building intentionally when we're inside of it. We don't want to have to worry about a car bomb going off in front of our place of work or where we're shopping or where our children are playing. We don't want to have to think about that anymore. And to get there is going to be a journey, a fight, a struggle, because that's where we are right now. The jihadists from the Islamic State and their fellow travelers, their supportive ideologues from around the world, they are in our societies. They, all, they are there. They exist. There are operational cells Right now in any number of countries that are no doubt planning their own version of the London Bridge attack. We can just go back a few months and see other attacks, whether the uh, whether the Manchester suicide bombing or the uh, beer truck that was hijacked and used as a weapon of murder in Sweden. Or uh, you you can just think off the top of your head and come up with any number of horrific incidents done in the name of jihad this is the the great evil this is the great struggle of our time i know that the democrats in the media want to focus constantly on russia and putin and act like he has some global domination plan that is nonsense putin does some bad things putin can be a big problem i understand all of that but the, the russians are not seeking to turn the rest of the world to either slavery or rubble That is, in fact, what the jihadists want. And when you look at them globally, they are a massive power. They are an insurgency in dozens, if not hundreds, or over a hundred countries. They are a global insurgency against our way of life and against our society. It is a cohesive ideology. It has spread. It is out there. We have to deal with this. And it is the great battle of our time. So here we are, just getting more details about what happened in London. And there's another jihadist maniac attacking a police officer at Notre Dame and a woman screaming Allahu Akbar and trying to stab people up in Canada. I mean, it doesn't have to be this way. When was the last time you read about a a Hindu or a, a Buddhist suicide bomber just going and killing a whole bunch of people? Or a Jewish or a Christian suicide. I mean, let's just say it. When was the last time? Or a militant atheist with a suicide vest on running around somewhere. It's been a long time. I don't know. I have to go back in the archives. Right now, we understand what the primary the primary threat is. It is from radical Islam. It is in our societies, and it is receiving support from around the world. And there is no easy answer to this. There's no way to make it go away tomorrow. But we might as, we, we might as well accept right now that this is an ongoing and continu- continuous struggle for the heart of civilization itself. Because if we let them, and this is just for those who want to downplay this and say it's not that big a deal, it's a law enforcement issue. If we stopped spending billions of dollars on counterterrorism, if we stopped all of our airport security and, and we removed these measures and we did no more, international surveillance, and we disbanded intelligence against terrorist threats, we would be suffering constant suicide bombings. We we would have mass casualty attacks on a regular basis. It is only because of the security measures we have in place and the disruptions of plots that are constantly happening, that we are not in an unlivable situation in the West. That is actually how fragile our circumstance currently is. I know no one ever speaks about it really that way, or a few people do, but that is the reality. So the jihadists, as much as they have pretensions beyond their aims and ability right now to control the world, are making the world a more dangerous, more tragic place. And they need to be dealt with and fought with every inch of our... Every ounce of our being. All right, I have to hit a break. Your team or will run into the next commercial. I will be right back. In the uh, updated reporting on this uh, woman, uh, Miss Winner, rea- reality Winner, um, and this is... You, For those who have been thinking for a while that there are people with access to sensitive, classified information who are um, a- anti-Trump, and there are a lot of them, this certainly fits the profile. Uh, she's a, a Bernie Sanders supporter. By the way, isn't it amazing how quickly now we can find out about people who aren't public persons based upon their social media footprint within, within minutes of an arrest or any major— news item that they get caught up in, right? You find out somebody's, you got photos of them, you know all about them. Uh, It's, it's, I just, this is an aside, I know, but it's pretty amazing how quickly all of this got out there. Uh, So she's a Bernie Sanders supporter. She uh, refer, she says all kinds of terrible things about Trump. Um, She uh, no doubt views the administration as illegitimate and she has shared uh, information or allegedly, and by the way, the alleged is, is important because we're talking about somebody's, you know, their future, their freedom hanging in the balance, and we do have a presumption of innocence, and we shouldn't forget about that, but it seems very it seems very bleak for this young woman. And I have to say that there is, is a part of me that, and I know many people are throwing around, they're saying treason and traitor. I'll talk more about this. We're going to have my friend Sean Davis joining here in a second, but uh, I, I think she was in part brainwashed by what's going on now with the media and this anti-Trump hysteria that's out there and she did something very foolish and has destroyed her future uh look i, I feel um I, I feel like this is something that we're unfortunately going to see more of in terms of people who make very foolish decisions because they think that they're part of quote the resistance and they destroy their lives they throw away their futures i you know i'm I, I may be too much of a, of a of a softy for some of you on things, but I I I feel I feel bad when people make decisions like this that that destroy their lives. Um, and again, assuming that she's found guilty, and you know we, we will see. Uh, maybe she will not. I, I do not. But it, it looks really bad right now. Another note though, an aside, uh, this idea that the press can just publish anything, and you've seen it tested a lot recently. I should note under the Trump administration, uh, the media is writing stuff is publishing stuff that is reckless in terms of sharing information that, if true, would be damaging to the United States. And I know that we've all been told by the press that the press gets to make the determinations about what is sensitive and classified and what is not, or rather, what should be shared, regardless of whether it is sensitive and classified. But that's actually not what the law says. The Espionage Act covers reporters the same way that it covers anybody who works inside of government. Believe it or not, that is the truth. It is a policy decision not to prosecute people in the press. And I just wonder if we could change the discussion a little bit. I'm not advocating for reporters to be prosecuted, but we should not be in this place where we are right now where uh, something like, a place like The Intercept or name a a publication uh, thinks that it can just share information that really damages America, that damages national security. And we're supposed to say, well, they're journalists, so that's okay. No, we can say that's disgraceful. Uh, we, we can say that harms this country. I, I think it's fascinating that the, the leaker, the alleged leaker, everyone's saying terrible person, and what she did is reckless and criminal and very bad, and I get that. But a media outlet that would publish that, again, allegedly, is just doing journalism? No, I'm sorry, that's actually not that's not sound ethical reasoning. And we need to revisit some of these assumptions about how the press can just publish anything it wants. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, team. We've got Sean Davis on the line. He is a co-founder of The Federalist. You all know him from his work there. Thefederalist.com is the site. Sean Davis is the man. He joins us now. What's up, Sean? Not
2: much. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. So I saw your your tweets last night, not technically in tweet storm format, but it, it felt like a storm of, of sorts, maybe a, a series of, of small hurricanes in different areas, uh, because when that stuff came out about the NSA, the alleged NSA leaker, right, not yet uh, guilty in a court of law, but looks pretty bad, I, I had a hard time believing, because I was seeing your tweets in real time on the show, the sloppiness of the whole endeavor on on her side, as well as on the media side of it, just seemed mind-boggling.
2: It is. There was so much stupid going on. So, so just to recap, DOJ announced yesterday that they had arrested and charged a woman named Reality Lee Winner, her actual real name, 25-year-old from Augusta, Georgia, for trafficking top-secret information from a government agency and giving it to a... Uh, news agency. And by reading between the lines on the DOJ press release and some of the details in it, it, it seems obvious that it was related to the report uh, in The Intercept, uh, a website run by Glenn Greenwald about uh, NSA uh, analysis on Russian hacking. Uh, and, and what happened was they were able to find her because, one, when she mailed the uh, documents to The Intercept, The Intercepts then provided the same documents uh, to the federal agency trying to confirm and corroborate what it was, and so they just went back into the records, saw who pulled up that document, and then lo and behold, it was this woman who, by the way, had been emailing the news organization from her work computer. It's just a hurricane of stupid.
0: I I, re- I it was actually people who were listening to the show yesterday will, will remember this. I had seen your tweets and, and I had thought that I must have misread initially. I was like, "There's no way that they. There's no way that that's what actually happened here. That that they would do that bo- both this this young woman and the news organization that she went to, which is as of yet." Officially unnamed, but everyone believes it to be. It is reportedly The Intercept, which would make sense because it's a it's a far left. I really view it as an as an anti-American site, actually. And I think there's a very interesting discussion that's beginning to happen now. Between, uh in the American uh, system that we have in terms of journalists and what they can publish, and what they can't, uh, not everything should be publicized. Not, not everything is a good idea. Radical transparency is actually dangerous and wrong.
2: Right. Well, and I think you made a, a good point there. Um, even though it was on the side, is it, looking kind of at the the origin of the intercept. Okay, this is a foreign funded media entity with a history of running interference for uh, assets of hostile foreign governments, like Snowden with Russia. Okay, that stuff came out via Glenn Greenwald at, at the Intercept, and so I completely agree with you that. You know, I'm I'm all for transparency. I want to know what our lawmakers are doing, what bills they're passing, who's funding them. I don't need to know every little top-secret thing that's happening within the highest echelons of our intelligence community. Some of that stuff just needs to stay quiet and needs to, to stay with certain people so they can do their jobs. We don't need to know every little thing, certainly not when the knowledge of that will put people and lives at risk, which is what DOJ said happened in this circumstance. They said it, it would... Uh, the, the release of the info would cause exceptionally grave consequences for national security.
0: Right. They, they say it was classified. It was reported classified at the top secret level, which, you know, there are echelons of secrecy based upon how damaging it will be. I mean, this is why, you know, confidential is obviously they would consider that to be less damaging, although still classified than something that is uh, at the at the top secret level. Uh, but I, I want to also talk about the, the context of the reality winner deciding to do this. Look, this all lines up in a way that people find it almost uh, it's almost too easy to believe in a sense because she's so far left. She says that Trump is a what is it? he's a he's a, t- a human tangerine. And uh, she hates Trump and he's the biggest threat to the world and climate change. And she loves Bernie Sanders. And all of this now is out on social media, which has been picked apart. So you've got a far leftist, Sean, that I think a young far leftist millennial who's in this echo chamber of Trump is Hitler, Trump is Hitler, Trump is Hitler. And just because she works in the uh, or you know works with intelligence, it doesn't mean that she's some you know, by the book, Patriot obviously, and this stuff had an influence on her, and she decided she was going to take a dramatic and very ill-advised action here.
2: Well, yeah. So, what really gets me is that this individual had clearance in the first place, because within minutes of getting that DOJ press DOJ press release, we were you know looking into the person, looking into her background, we found her Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter in about five minutes, and about five minutes after that, we found a tweet of her. Uh, writing to the foreign minister of Iran, uh, a, a terrorist regime that's an enemy of, of the U.S., pledging her allegiance to him against Trump because Trump's icky. How on earth does our intelligence community, which prides itself on knowing everything about everyone, uh, about always having the right story and, and the right details, how on earth do they miss that with a person like that? How on earth does that person get clearance? That scares me far more than anything else that we've learned from this little escapade, is how damaged and how broken our entire security and intelligence apparatus really is.
0: We're speaking to Sean Davis of The Federalist. He's got a piece up. The DOJ, DOJ just charged a federal contractor with illegally leaking top-secret information. Uh, Sean, I, there are some Democrat lawmakers that are obviously going to try and push the story that was in the Intercept that is being reported to be what you know, was released by this woman or based on the release by this woman who allegedly leaked all this classified information. Uh, I think the Comey thing is going to be a big bag of nothing.
2: I I tend to agree. In fact, it looks like he and his people are already intimating it's going to be a big bag of nothing after uh, pretending anonymously for weeks, going back to, you know, the silly memo that he wrote proving that Trump obstructed justice, Uh, they're now intimating that, oh, no, actually, it's not going to be that big. He's not going to let obstruction of justice. He's just going to say this, this, and that.
0: uh, They they switched on that, Sean. I remember talking on this show last week. I was like, uh, uh, this headline, the the headlines that were running at places like I think ABC News was, you know, will Comey say that Trump tried to shut down the investigation, question mark? It's like, uh, well, we don't know that, and how can you report that? And now that it's gotten closer, they already ran the damage, right? They already did the propaganda. Now walking it back doesn't change what they've done to mold perception going in.
2: Correct. It's all a game. It's all a game to these people. And, and it's a game that's being played by Comey, by Preet Mahara, uh, one of his former employees, and by Benjamin Wittes, one of his uh, you know BFFs over at Brookings. Uh, they play this little game in the media, and this is how Jim Comey played. He has played like this since he uh, got in this job, uh, since he got at the highest levels of government. He was playing this game back in 2006 and 2007. He is a, a drama queen, and he loves to craft these narratives where the only hero, the only person standing up for justice and uh, equality is jim comey himself and quite frankly i'm tired of it and it's time for this clown to go away
0: i totally agree with you on that and i have some friends who are conservatives out there and you might even know some of the people i'm talking about without me naming them who still cling to this you know comey is the last honest man in america narrative And I'm like uh what just based on what he did with announcing the no charges against hillary was was i, I think uh, fire a fireable offense and really unethical actually because it was done to shield the politicization that had already occurred.
2: It it was a joke. One he made a whole bunch of claims that weren't true. Uh you know, he invented this new intent standard that wasn't in the law. Well, I mean, did Hillary accidentally set up the server, uh, Mr. Director? You know, then he comes in and says no reasonable prosecutor uh, wouldn't die. Would indict. I, be I just want to add
0: in, that. Sean, you know, because people say this that no, there's no intent. I actually don't want to live in a country where there's no standard of of thought, there's no mens rea, or or there's no requirement of your state of mind before. But recklessness is in the statute. That's what people. Yes, it, it's not intent, and he made that up. But recklessness is in fact c- covered, and this was recklessness. You know what I mean? It, it's not that this was open to interpretation. It's actually even worse. Yes, it was gross negligence. Right, or gross negligence, yeah.
2: Yeah, he invents this new standard, and then after inventing this new standard, he proceeds to, in a press conference, indict the person he just exonerated. Like, that is not – I don't care how much you dislike Hillary. I don't like her one bit. I think she should have been charged. But to go and exonerate someone and then to then slam them immediately because you're obviously trying to have it both ways, that's not how our justice system is supposed to work. This guy needs to shut up, and he needs to go away. He's done enough damage, and as former Bush attorney general uh, Al Gonzalez said of him in, I think, 06 or 07, look, this guy's more loyal to Chuck Schumer than he is to anyone else. This guy has been working hand-in-hand with Democrats his entire career, and, and it needs to stop.
0: We're speaking to Sean Davis of The Federalist. Sean, before we let you go, I wanted to get your take on the meetings that, or the meeting that Trump had with GOP leaders today. You wrote about this – or I'm sorry, this is up on political, I know that you've got thoughts on this – uh, what do you think about this? This focusing on the agenda with GOP leadership—it feels like for a change.
2: Yeah, it's about time. I mean, that—that's he gets so wrapped around the axle. He gets, you know, he watches cable news and responds to it and tweets about it. It's long past time for Trump and Republicans to actually do something. So Gorsuch was great pulling out of uh, the Paris Accords was great from a conservative perspective. It's time to them for them to start actually enacting. Uh, passing implementing legal reforms it it is long past time they've been in there for six months Uh, do something already so i thought it was encouraging but we'll see what actually comes from it
0: and just one more thing on on infrastructure getting a lot of talk we got air traffic control going through some process of reform although it's really more of a separation as i understand it from the air safety aspect from the actual implementation of air traffic day to day Uh, but who knows right it's still in process What are your your thoughts on those two items, both the the air traffic control announcement and then just infrastructure spending more broadly?
2: Well, I I have to admit I was a little bit disappointed when I heard the air traffic control thing, not because I think it is necessarily a bad idea, but I think if we're doing something related to air travel, can we please do something about TSA? Please, President Trump, do something about this awful, awful organization. Uh, As far as infrastructure, I'm sure that whole thing is going to be a boondoggle. Uh, in in a it'll be a bipartisan boondoggle, but we'll see what
0: happens. I, I have I know I said I was going to let you go shop One more thing, uh, I, I have a bit of a concern with this administration when it comes to conflating law and order with the statism that can come out of national security goals. Right, so I, I worry, for example, that. They, they will say, well, you know, because we want to enforce immigration law, we also need to make the TSA like the biggest, baddest TSA possible. And it's, you know, there there's civil liberties, uh, libertarian issues that I feel like don't get enough attention with this administration because they want to be thought of as very law and order.
2: Oh, I think, that, I think that's totally fair. And, and you should always be wary uh, when people start doing anything and everything under the rubric of national security. Like, clearly, that should be something we're concerned about, but not everything is connected to it. Uh, my beef with with TSA is that it right now seems to have little to do with national security and a lot more to do with groping grammars.
0: Yeah. Whenever I say I, I always like to remind people that whenever a politician says they're doing something for for national security or for the children, you should just be skeptical. Doesn't mean they're lying, but you should be skeptical. Uh, Sean Davis, everybody of the Federalist, check out his latest on the Federalist dot com, and if you're on Twitter, S E A N M D A V, Sean D, uh, Sean M D A V is a great follow. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Team, uh, we've got a lot more show coming. Uh, Be right back. I remember when we were in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement getting uh, maximum attention and... I kept saying that the rhetoric that they were using, and I remember being at uh, being at, walking through and seeing some of the protests uh, that were going on. And of course, there were incidents where it was really more riot than protest. but I, I remember uh, seeing the the signs, the placards reading them, and hearing the rhetoric about racist murdering cops and cops hunting young black men and and indicating that it was done for sport or out of racism. And just the worst kind of invective. And then in front of the TV cameras most of the time or, you know, going on some of the uh, some of the shows uh, out there, we would have some spokesperson for Black Lives Matter who would say that we don't in any way condone uh, violence against police. And we would never say that the police are all bad. We're just saying we're just trying to raise awareness about black lives. And there was there was a fundamental dishonesty there. I saw it myself. I heard it myself. So I don't really. In fact, I, I, I debated Van Jones on this issue after one of those incidents where a cop was murdered by somebody who believed uh, that he was acting on at least the the ethos, the inspiration of the Black Lives Matter movement. By the way, I think I handily defeated Mr. Jones in that debate on CNN. Maybe we'll have to post that on Buck dot com um, just as a little reminder but the point being that the environment of hateful rhetoric can have ramifications. They say this all the time. Uh, they overstated, I think, about is, when it comes to Islamophobia. So, so they will say on the one hand, they being the left and the Democrats, that talking about Islamic terrorism or Islamic radicalism is uh, going to lead to violence. And I say, well, that's no, that's too much. If people were actually impugning the entire Muslim community and saying that to be Muslim is to be wrong or to be evil. Well, yeah, that that does create a a hostile climate uh, and an environment where people may act out violently. But speaking about it responsibly and saying that this is a problem that comes from within uh, Islam is just speaking the truth. That's not being reckless. And I don't think in any way is that condoning or or or. provoking violence against individuals. But as we know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, there were police officers who were killed by adherence to that philosophy of police are killing young black men, which, by the way, is also a lie. It's not true in the way that it's presented, meaning that there's a disproportionate uh, disproportionate number based upon criminal stops of young black men who are killed comparatively. In fact, the studies have shown that young black men are less likely than non-black uh, men men during a police stop to be involved in a fatal shooting with the officer regardless of the race of the officer but that's perhaps more detailed discussion that we can have another time why am i bringing this up now i'm talking about black lives matter and the climate of hate against police the climate of hate that the media has created around president trump does have consequences meaning the the media always insinuating and suggesting that the president is a traitor, which they have, have asked openly on TV, at least in question form, as, as a smear, right, as a veiled smear, or not even really that veiled. Uh, but they, they have been suggesting that there's something so rotten in this administration that the president is illegitimate and that he would betray his country. That has consequences as well. And I think that there are people who are impressionable, who are uh, millennials, who are younger, who will act out, as we saw with this uh, contractor who allegedly gave classified information to the press to, again, reportedly not confirmed, hurt President Trump. We will see people who will act out, and the perverse and sad reality of it is that they think they're being patriotic because the media has convinced them, has brainwashed them into thinking that this administration is illegitimate, a Russian puppet, and is evil and cannot be allowed to continue and must be thrown out of office and Trump must go to prison. That reinforcement of that message is going to have, I'm very concerned about this because it's, yes, there's these deep state elements, but there are young people out there or there are people of all kinds out there who are impressionable and they are being brainwashed by the media against this administration in In a manner that is dangerous it is dangerous all right i'm gonna hit a break we'll be right back
2: he spreads freedom because freedom's not gonna spread itself buck sexton is back
0: welcome back everybody we know the president has been talking about infrastructure for quite a while and there's this one trillion dollar infrastructure initiative that's being raised now. Well, what would this look like? Is it a good idea? Is it possible to help us answer those questions? We have uh, Professor Richard Epstein on the line. He is a professor of law at NYU School of Law. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Hoover Institution, and his books include "The Classical Liberal Constitution" and "Design for Liberty: Private Property, Public Administration, and the Rule of Law." All right, Professor Epstein, thank All you, right. sir. So okay, and now, let's talk about infrastructure, sir. Trump is saying he wants to spend a trillion dollars on it. You say what As a, as a, in principle? Is a good idea?
1: Well, the question is, yes, there certainly is a need for expenditure on infrastructure. If you look at the ratio of budgets in states and in the federal government, uh, there's one that's very instructive. The amount on infrastructure is way down. The amount on transfer payments is way up. Infrastructure should create capital assets, which means that the money you spend today has value in the future periods. Transfer payments tend not to. So, yes, you certainly need to spend more on infrastructure, but the most important question is how much of a bang do you get for your buck? And on this, I think there are two things that really have to be done. You can waste money on infrastructure the way you could waste it on anything else. And if you look at the stimulus bill from 2009, uh, the first thing they did was to make sure to protect the position of labor unions when it came to construction on these infrastructure projects. That's a terrible mistake. Labor contracts should be put out at competitive bid, and that could probably lower their cost at a guess by 20 to 25 percent. Um, There's no reason whatsoever to use an infrastructure program as a disguised transfer program of wealth to one preferred sector of the economy. And these should be open bids, and the low bidder's quality constant is the one who ought to get the job. And the Democrats will fiercely fight that, but I think it's time to reverse a national policy, which has been in place since 1931 when they passed the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, The second major problem that you have to have is the permitting system. Uh, I would say that, as a sensible estimate, the entire permit process today probably could lengthen the time of construction projects by three or fourfold while doing nothing to improve their quality and, in fact, while creating other dislocations in other areas as you have to disrupt the landscape in order to put these things into place. What one needs to do is to undo the NEPA program, the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires an elaborate set of permits to be given before any work can be done. And these can take years to do it because it's the slow permit that determines the pace of the project. So if you need 20 and you have 19, you're still way back. Uh, The older system was much better, and if you get rid of this crazy permit system and what you announce is You start building almost immediately. If it turns out uh, you deviate from specifications that we'll give you or create apparel, we'll shut you down and fine you. And the difference in the two approaches are just enormous so that when they had to rebuild several years ago the Santa Monica Freeway, it was such an important project that what they did is they waived all of the standard permits. And what they did is they put the companies on a basically a an incentive contract. This is your fixed fee. If you're late, you pay us something back, and if you're early, we give you something extra and instead of taking five years, the project took about three
0: months. Where are the first places that this money should go? We're talking about a trillion dollars and and even in this era of massive government spending, a trillion with a T gets people's attention it's a lot of money well, that's so.
1: I mean, what you do is you try to figure out the areas in which the uh, – on an objective basis, if you can do this, uh, where is there the greatest bottlenecks, where are there the greatest physical damages. You don't want to be repairing roads in rural West Virginia if it turns out you have serious crumbling infrastructure on the New York and New Jersey bridges. So you'd want to intensify it there. I live in New York.
0: I'm pretty sure we do. But yes, go ahead, sir. Yeah,
1: I mean, so, you know, you want to basically get it to the places where the dereliction has been the worst and try to fix it up. Uh, But the point is it's not just getting the money in the right place. It's spending it in a sensible fashion. And the two reforms that I've talked about having to do with the situation on labor markets and on permits, if you put them both into place in a sensible fashion, you'd probably cut the cost of new construction by 70%. This gives you an idea of just how much bloat there is in time to the system, because all of these things are put in place separately. That won't make that big a difference if we do this or if we do that. But when you combine them all in one project, it's a way. So think of it this way. If you reform the project, you can essentially double the total amount of infrastructure or more uh, that you create with the dollars. In- so
0: who's in charge of that reform? How, how would that work? I mean, if, if I could get you in the Oval Office with President Trump, and whomever his top advisors will be on this project, and again, assuming they go forward with this and, and the Congress is on board, uh, but you're talking about the implementation, what would the steps have to be in order to get the cost savings and efficiency you're talking about so that people listening actually get their bridges fixed, actually have the roads improved?
1: On the labor side, you put it out to competitive bids and you let anybody bid whether or not in union. And so that means you have to repeal the Davis-Bacon Act. Or, and the
0: Democrats will freak out at that, right, just so everybody... Right, under-
1: yes, but it turns out that in all of these cases, there may be some waiver provisions that could be introduced selectively at the executive level, just as they were with respect to the Santa Monica Freeway. And with respect to the permit system, what you need to do is to waive them systematically and go to a regime which says, yes, we're always worried about environmental harms, but instead of worrying about a thousand things that don't happen, we'll start construction, and then when something looks as though it might be bad and happen. At that point, we'll require you to fix the damage or to slow down the work. And believe me, as with the Santa Monica Freeway, nobody who puts a huge amount of money into these projects is going to try and essentially um, play fancy, Dan, and escape these kinds of environmental protections by saving a few dollars here or there. You run the inspections. You allow private groups to monitor the behavior from a distance so as to see whether or not there's been flooding somewhere else. And you can certainly do it. So there is a real problem here, as there always is. Now, how much of this can be done executive and how much it requires legislative assistance. My guess is you could do a fair amount of it if you're going to use the waiver stuff. There's a kind of an irony here, because the Obama administration was very big on waivers, often for the wrong people and the wrong purpose, and now the same technique could be used by the right people for the right purpose. Remember, the purpose of public infrastructure improvement is to improve infrastructure. It's not to give super-competitive rates to environmental um, um, basically, environmental forces that want to slow these things down or to give premium wages to various kinds of union forces. And these are reforms which have completely altered the landscape, say, from the time that we had the great um, infrastructure and in the state interstate highway program under Eisenhower.
0: Professor, to... one more for you. I just want to ask given President Trump's background in dealing with construction and dealing with unions in the process of construction. Uh, do, you, do you think that he has a particular background that's applicable here in pushing this forward? And, and do you think it's really possible to get this done?
1: Well, I think it's possible to get it done. I think the thing to understand is Trump may be familiar with the problems. What he's not familiar with is how government bureaucrats operate. Uh, the way in which business works in the private sector is very different from what it is in the public sector. In the private sector, you can actually fire people. In the public sector, you have to negotiate with them. And I think he's much better at the first than he is at the latter. So he's going to have to get some very experienced hands who can tell him the way in which this thing could be done. But there's no doubt this is not rocket science if you simply undo the so-called reforms that took place in the 30s on labor and in the late 60s and early 70s on environmental permitting you could go a long way to getting things right
0: professor richard epstein of nyu law school and a senior fellow at the hoover institution sir really appreciate you joining us thank you for sharing your expertise oh my you know, team, I I look at what's going on right now between I know this is a, a somewhat of an aside, but between the the mayor of London and Donald Trump and this this little feud that the media is continuing to fan here. There's such more there are so much more important issues that should be tackled right now, and we should have such a a, a unified focus on combating terrorism, as Prime Minister Theresa May says, the virulent Islamist ideology of terrorism. Uh, we should have a focus on that, and the fact that the London mayor is, is suggests publicly calling off the leader of the free world, which whether you love him or not, that's what Donald Trump is. The, that the mayor of London suggests calling off a state visit to Britain is it, just—it's uh, it, not helpful. Uh, it makes it makes him look petty, and I, I understand that Trump, you know, referred to the the mayor's comments initially, and there's some back and forth as to whether he was really understanding the full context of the tweet, Uh, I I don't think that this is, you know, this is not where our energy should be. So I find it frustrating. Um, And the uh, U.S.-U.K. relationship on counterterrorism is as important as any we have in the world. So this just, to me, it's like tabloid headlines that are crowding out much more important discussions about what's, what's going on here. I mean, I can't believe this... This mayor is picking a fight with the president of the United States. But I, I guess it's kind of like that movie, uh, what is it, Love Actually, where that's a, that's the prime minister of the U.K., played by Hugh Grant. But the, the big scene in that movie is where the prime minister of the U.K. Uh, gives a, a verbal thrashing of sorts to the hick cowboy president of the United States. And it's just I, I don't know if this is some sort of weird leftist U.K. fantasy that they're playing out there, but it, it was nonsense. And this mayor, he needed to just focus on his city and, and working with the counterterrorism authorities there. And, and just, you know, don't, don't get into it with the leader of the free world. Not, in my opinion, not a worthwhile endeavor, not a good idea, not helpful, not constructive, and not what he should be doing. So anyway, um, you know, it is the anniversary of D-Day today, my friends. We're going to talk about that right after the break. I'll be right back.
1: have made their first landings on the soil of Western Europe. Another of the great decisive battles of world history has been joined. This is the day for which
0: free people long have waited. This is D-Day. 73 years ago today, June 6th, the U.S. and its allies crossed the English Channel and landed on the beaches of uh, northern France in Normandy. And it was the beginning of the liberation of Western Europe from the totalitarianism of Nazi Germany. Um, many of you know the history of D-Day itself quite well. I'm sure uh, General Eisenhower, Supreme Allied Commander, uh, gave, the, gave the thumbs up for uh, Operation Overlord the day before on June 5th, nineteen 19- Forty-four, and you had an immense force. I mean, the largest amphibious uh, operation, amphibious landing in all of military history. Uh, 176,000 troops left England uh, to arrive in northern France and take on the Nazi menace. Um, by dawn, this is from history.com, on June 6th, uh, 18,000 parachutists were already on the ground. The land invasions began at 6.30 a.m. The British and Canadians overcame light opposition to capture gold, Juno, and sword beaches. Uh, so did the Americans at Utah. Things were a lot harder at Omaha Beach. 2,000 troops were lost, and it required incredibly difficult fighting uh, from the Allied side to achieve the objective that day. At the end, 150,000 troops, American, Americans, Brits, and Canadians had taken the beaches of Normandy, uh, end quote. So this was uh, one of the most famous uh, military operations in, in all U.S. history, and really one of the most famous military operations in, in world history. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the Nazi plan had been to be able to smash the Soviet war machine on the Eastern Front, and then turn around and crush uh, crush the Americans and their allies on the Western Front. But uh, the Eastern Front was much more difficult. In fact, it was disastrous for the Nazis, uh, most notably at the Battle of Stalingrad, where the German losses were, were tremendous. I mean, they just had appalling losses on the Eastern Front, and the primary might of the Nazi war machine was thrown against the Soviets on the Eastern Front, um, and then uh, it was a much depleted uh, German military, Nazi military machine that was faced on the Western Front, but still enough that the fighting was uh, very difficult and brutal, and, and then, of course, there was the uh, Ardennes, the offensive through the Ardennes to try and, uh, at the Battle of the Bulge, try and shift the balance of the war, in favor of the Nazis after the landings. Uh, But I I think that a moment to remember D-Day, especially for uh, my generation, uh, millennials, uh, although I'm kind of an old millennial, uh, is worth it right now for a a, a number of reasons. Of course, you just have the uh, solemn duty to remember the sacrifices of those who were lost and wounded that day, and also the celebration of the courage of those Uh, all of those who fought uh, at Normandy and including our uh, British and Canadian uh, brothers in arms. Uh, But we now are so stuck in this hyper-partisan and uh, hyper-politicized atmosphere where that sense of a unity of purpose that existed uh, on the beaches of Normandy, where it really was a truly American fight against a, a great evil, an odious and vile empire of Nazi Germany, uh, we should remind ourselves, uh, not just, of course, of the courage of those at Normandy and that generation. Uh, still, to this day, we have members uh, of the U.S. Armed Forces that you can th- you can thank in person for this. Uh, my grandfather uh, fought in the Pacific Theater and the Navy on the USS Bataan, uh, but the Uh, those who fought that day uh, in Normandy uh, are a reminder, I think, to all of us of what is good and what is great about America and our our patriotism when faced with a mortal enemy uh, should always be what, what unites us and brings us together. We do not seem to have the same sense of, uh, of unity when it comes to facing down uh, jihadism and uh, radical Islam in all of its forms around the world. And I find that troubling. Uh, I think that we have unfortunately been divided in such a way politically that the great challenge of our time, which is defeating the regressive and authoritarian uh, impulses of Islamism and jihadism— That's not an endeavor in which we find ourselves, as Americans, entirely united. In fact, there are a lot of Americans, and there are a lot of those in our allied countries, who seem to think that a better approach is to explain away or even downplay the threat, or claim that we are the cause of this somehow, that jihadism is a response to American actions and activities. I find that uh, to be completely wrongheaded and, uh, it's discouraging. Uh, and I think that taking a moment today to remember, uh, the brave men who landed at Normandy and fought back at a, at a global menace and an ideology that sought world domination and was on the prep, uh, precipice of achieving just that. Um, that it it is possible when we are uh, all united in in love and sacrifice for this country to achieve great things. And we are a force for good in the world. We are the greatest force for good in the world. And I believe that D-Day and what occurred on that day is a reminder of that. So I just wanted to take a minute to uh, thank all of those who served, uh, remember them, remember their families, and remind all of us that We still have that in us. Um, We still have that sense of of love of country and patriotism and that America is on the side of good in the constant fight between good and evil. Going to hit a break here, team. We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. Always remember that on the left, there is a game plan, especially on on social issues, social justice issues. And if you look back, you can see how this has played out on a whole variety of topics uh, in the last couple of decades. But it starts with tolerance, and then it goes to acceptance, and then it goes to celebration, and it ends in submission. So tolerance, for example, would be when we're talking about uh, transgender rights. Tolerance would be treat people with transgender uh, who are transgender uh, as though they are no different from anybody else. They should have all the full uh, rights and and should be treated with dignity and and people, sure, tolerance they'll they'll go along with that because that is the ethical thing that's the right thing to do. But then there's the acceptance level. and acceptance turns into, well, you really shouldn't criticize this. You, you shouldn't view this as different. You shouldn't decide that there is any uh, question that should be asked about whether this is healthy or good for the person. You should just accept it, right? Remember, tolerance is just don't bother the person, treat them as a, as a you know, to- tolerance is, is fine. Everyone should be tolerant of everybody else. But tolerance is the first step in the progressive, uh, in the progressive, uh, well, I was going to say in the, uh, progressive continuum um, of how they get to the end state on a social justice issue where all of a sudden you're living in some alternate reality. But so they start with tolerance, and that becomes a mantra, right? You, you have to be tolerant, and a lot of people go along and say, okay, I, I can be tolerant. But then ex- acceptance is the level beyond that. Acceptance is, well, you shouldn't criticize, you shouldn't question. And if you do, there's something wrong with you. You know, you can't say that transgender individuals maybe should uh, seek therapy, counseling, they should just have the operation that they want or, or they should be able to choose the pronoun that they want and no one should be able to question that. Once there is enough of a critical mass of people who want acceptance or or, or rather who, who uh, declare that they are part of the movement of acceptance, then it turns into celebration. Celebration is... No longer is this something that should be uh, beyond criticism. That's acceptance. Celebration is, this is fantastic. This is great. Let's have news articles. Let's have uh, stories, run about what a wonderful thing this is. You know, transgender children, for example, recently has received this treatment in the media. You know, It's not just that they should be treated as people that need help and love and support like everybody else. That's tolerance. It's not just don't criticize or question this, this, you know, you you should accept this. That's acceptance. It's celebration. It's, this is great. We should be so happy about this. We should all be thrilled that there are transgender teens running around now demanding to be called different pronouns. And, And then eventually you get to submission after celebration because submission is what happens when you don't celebrate. Submission is, you better say this is great or else. You better tell people that you support this wholeheartedly or else there will be consequences. So it goes tolerance, acceptance, celebration, submission. And on transgender rights in this country, we, we, are, we are basically at the submission phase of the progressive continuum here. Case in point, trans—this is a story on TheBlaze.com, my old friends and family at The Blaze, uh, writing this one— uh, transgender freshman sprinter born a male wins two girls state championships they write the, this piece is about Andrea Yearwood who was born Andre Yearwood who's a freshman and just won the girls 100 and 200 meter dashes at the Connecticut state championships so you know there are these there are news stories local news stories about what a great accomplishment i mean a freshman winning state championships in the 100-meter and the 200-meter dash. That is really impressive, isn't it? Except Andrea Yearwood is anatomically male, entirely anatomically male. There's no question about that. Biologically speaking, Andrea Yearwood is a, a young man. Uh, but Andrea Yearwood identifies as female, and so we are, like I said, We're beyond tolerance. We're beyond acceptance. We're, in fact, even although the media is doing celebration of this, we are approaching the submission phase where you better say that this is great. Not even just accept that this is the way it's going to be. You better sit there and clap and be happy for a high school student who is a guy who's running against girls. And just to give you a sense of the the difference in the competitive landscape there, and I know this also. Oh, it's like I'm just sitting here being a spokesperson for the patriarchy or something. But her, uh, this uh, Andrea's uh, time would have been slower than um, would have been slower than the slowest male competitor in the same track meet. So the the champion in the 100 and 200 meter sprints. Uh, among the, the female competitors is slower than every single one of the guys. This is entirely, I'm sure, unsurprising to all of you, but this is the reality. Uh, and the, the news stories on this are, you know, it shows the parents and there are these interviews and there's discussions about how it's just great that Andre Yearwood has become Andrea Yearwood. I won't even get too far into the whole aspect of this that deals with whether a person of, uh, of this age, a, a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old, um, w- should be encouraged in this transgender status. I just want to focus on, w- what do we tell the girls in the track meet? The, the, the anatomically, the, the genetically female participants in this race. Oh, w- one of them was, was interviewed in this, well, was mentioned, I should say, in this Blaze article and was really upset. I think she has every right to be really upset. She should be a state champion, and instead she's not. And she's not because somebody who has a clear, physical, genetic advantage competed against girls. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. The, the left has lost its mind. This is not okay. Uh, and we've finally started to see, I think, more of a consensus building that... For example, in combative sports, boxing, mixed martial arts, for a man to compete against women is just horrific. Uh, it's, it's a form of abuse, actually. It's wrong. Um, and there, 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 there's a line that, that some are willing to draw, but the progressives push back on that, too. Uh, but w- what, do we tell, what do we tell these young girls who r- ran and, and trained for years And this could have been a really special moment for uh, certainly the second and third place finishers. You know, I mean, the the second place finisher, I'm sure, is furious. I would be. What do we tell them? Sorry, social justice trumps all your hard work. Sorry, the progressive left has an agenda. That's what the media is doing. It's really a disgrace. Um, I'll be back to you. Team, I know we've talked a lot about terrorism today and and national security issues, but I wanted to return to some of the latest on the investigation into the uh, horrific suicide bombing in Manchester at that uh, Ariana Grande concert. We've known for a while that uh, Salman Abedi was the the suicide bomber, uh, but we're finding out more information about him, and I think that this is Uh, worth spending some time on because it tells us about the different kinds of jihadist threats that are currently faced by the UK and certainly we face here in uh, America as well. Here's what the, the Telegraph in the UK writes, and this is just from this week. The Manchester bomber is suspected of being remote controlled by an ISIL terror group behind the Paris and Brussels attacks, Libyan security sources have told the Telegraph. Salman Abedi is understood to have made calls to two mobile phone numbers based in Libya which were not registered to his family moments before the massacre that killed 22 people. He called two Libyan men right before the attack. Said the source in Libya. He is being investigated by Libyan authorities over fears he was remote controlled by virtual plotters in the country who coached and goaded him into carrying out the atrocity. Now, uh, this is... A, a variation on what we've seen before in these terrorists, these ISIS inspired terror attacks, because there's really a few different levels of this, right? There are different, uh, different versions of how ISIS, uh, well, how ISIS is involved in terrorism around the world. Um, there are lone wolves, people who radicalize based on what they read online or what they hear in a mosque or from friends. But that is just a process, a process of self-radicalization based on access to information. There are uh, outside-in plots or outside-directed plots where, say, someone goes and joins the Islamic State, and then they are trained in explosives, weapons, uh, document forgery, whatever the terrorist tradecraft is that they pick up, and then they are assigned— to go and and attack back in their home country, whether it's the U.K. or France. But those are actually trained ISIS agents. And then there's another level as well, and this is being referred to these days as remote control attacks, Uh, or you could refer to these also as either inspired, enabled, or directed. So enabled is under the remote controlled category. Uh, so you're seeing more of, these, uh, more of these happening. It's where there's communication, right? This is remote-controlled or enabled attacks. There is a communication with the group that tries to help them as they uh, go forward. Uh, the Times actually had a pretty interesting write-up on this a while ago. They said that uh, on these attacks where there's assistance, right, where they are enabled, ISIS enables them, They're involved with, quote, virtual coaches who are providing guidance and encouragement throughout the process from radicalization to recruitment into a specific plot. Um, If you look at the communication between the attackers and the virtual plotters, you will see that there is a direct line of communication to the point where they're egging them on minutes, even seconds before the individual carries out an attack. So this is an increasingly uh, prominent form of ISIS, uh, ISIS terrorist act. And as we look more at Abedi, who traveled to Libya, it seems like he was in contact uh, with a group there, and this is also according to the New York Times, called uh, Katibat al Batar al-Libbi, uh, which is an Islamic State unit that used to be in Syria, but, but then it dispersed back to Libya, and it's made up of, of Libyans who had gone to Syria to be a part of that war, and then they returned They returned to Libya and became a place where, uh, once they were in Libya, and, and they had ensconced themselves in the midst of that failed state, which I should note is a failed state because of the... Uh, Decision by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama to intervene there, topple a dictator, and have no plan for anything that would come afterwards. But this group, Katibat uh, al batar al-Libi, uh, became a place where French and Belgian foreign fighters in particular would congregate. So you'd have Frenchmen and Belgians who would show up in, in Libya, and then they were training for external attacks, for external plotting. Uh, and it is believed that Abedi would, uh, well, uh, Abedi went there. Remember, his parents were Libyan. His father is reportedly was a member of the LIFG, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which uh, has previous ties to. Fight so Abedi goes to Libya and sees, he met up with this group, and they then uh, probably helped him, is what we can see here. They were part of the uh, whole process of getting him to pick out a target, uh, of how to build the bombs. Uh, much of what happened in this attack could have been uh, directly part of the plotting process in Libya. Uh, a, a security source told The Telegraph, the UK paper, that Abedi a made five calls before Setting off that explosion after this is what this is what they write after calling his parents separately and speaking to his brothers, uh, his, or his brother Hashem, his final calls were to two Libyan men who the police are understood to be urgently investigating over whether, they're suspect, uh, whether their suspected uh, whether they suspected links to the Albatar terror cell uh, are real. Uh, the suspicion is that these guys were also part of the plot and either knew about it beforehand or actively encouraging Abedi to carry out. The attack. So here you would have a circumstance where an individual had traveled to Libya, uh, had met with this group that, that is known, by the way, for the specific tactic of uh, of training people on assault—you know, on, on uh, assault techniques using an AK-47 and strapping on a suicide vest—and the idea being that when they would uh, finish. In the assault, when they could no longer fight anymore, then they would hit. Uh, they would hit the detonator on the suicide vest, and that's so th- they have this reputation um, for tactics that would have been well, at least in the suicide vest category. Obviously, similar to Abedi, uh, but also this unit in Libya, the Katibat uh, al Batar al Libi. Uh, al Libi just means the you know uh, I mean, Libya is Libya. In this uh, just FYI, so anytime you hear of somebody al-Libby or something al-Libby, it's Libyan, uh, the group uh, was part of the or rather coordinated the attack in Paris in 2015. Um, so some of the most devastating uh, terrorist attacks in Europe have included these actions by this group based out of Libya. So, look, Libya has gotten a little bit better at combating its terrorist elements, at least in terms of not allowing them to have 100 yards of coastline in in Libya, right? Sirte and these areas of Libya that were under Islamic State control for a while, they've been pushed out of that. But the group has not been entirely eradicated, it has just lost its control of actual territory in Libya, which means that it's still has active operational cells, and as we saw tragically uh, with Salman Abedi, uh, that means that they can be a part of attacks that hit directly at Europe. So I I don't know if this means that there'll be any additional coalition, U.S. or European uh, activities in Libya meant to deal specifically with this group or not. certainly seems possible, Uh, but... These ISIS franchises, which I think often get written about and talked about as though they're irrelevant, they're far away, they have no, they have no real meaning here, there's nothing to be overly concerned about with them, they are uh, capable of encouraging and perhaps—well, encouraging, plotting and planning, and in this case perhaps even remote controlling the suicide bombing uh, against Western targets, against Europe, and against America— So we have to take these franchises very seriously and and view them as a a credible security threat to all of us. And that's why when you read about, for example, a group in the Philippines that pledges allegiance to the Islamic State, that's something that we have to pay attention to even in uh, the West because that pledge means that they are part of, uh, ideologically aligned with, uh, an organization that wants to hit us. And, you know, the world is not a place where we can just hope that these threats go away. So anyway, I want to follow up on a betty. That's the latest we have on him. I'm going to hit a quick break here, team. We'll be right back.
2: He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back.
0: Is college worth it? The answer is it depends. I've been saying this for a while. It's been clear to me that just based on the raw numbers, the the percentage of people that have bachelor's degrees, that one of the primary purposes of a college degree, not to say a college education, I'll talk about that a little bit, too, uh, has, well, begun to fade away. Um Everybody now these days applying for a certain level of job has a bachelor's degree, it seems, which means that a bachelor's degree is no longer the signaling mechanism to employers that it once was. Uh, This has enormous implications for our whole country, for our society, for spending, for careers. And I think that colleges and universities, because they've grown so uh, fat and happy, so to speak, don't really want to uh, address this. Uh, they like the way things have been. Well, for one, from and this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon, by the way. Um, all the things I'm going to talk to you about here, this is uh, this has been changing even since I went to college. Uh, that was when much of this began to happen in the early 2000s. But now we're in 2017, and the data uh, the data shows a clear trend uh, first of all in the 1970s for example this is from the Wall Street Journal today uh, less than 1% of taxi drivers were college graduates as of 2010 15% were now taxi drivers uh, are doing an honorable job and an honest day's work but in terms of level of education it's not a not considered a skilled profession that you have 15% of uh, taxi drivers as of 2010, over the course of 40 years, it's an up, uh, upwards of 15x increase in the numbers of people who have that job with a college degree versus before. Um, you, you look at all of the numbers, in fact, on, on college, and this is from a piece in the Wall Street Journal, The Diminishing Returns of a College Degree, And it shows that while we've created this impression that everybody needs a four-year bachelor's degree, that whatever loans you have to take out to make that happen, you should do. If that's just completely out of reach, then a community college degree is your next best option. Uh, That is not really supported by the data. Um, And now this is where you get into... The uh, back and forth that a university would put forward on oh, well, it's about your education and investing in yourself. And um, there's also information, this is also at a Wall Street Journal piece, that colleges fail to improve critical thinking skills. Uh, that when they apply a standardized test to look at critical thinking skills uh, across uh, dozens of public colleges and universities from 2013 to 2016 they saw that there was, quote, little or no improvement in critical thinking skills over four years. So I can test that college makes you smarter. You might learn some things. You might not learn very much, but, uh, but I can test the notion that just inherently going to college is something that will make you uh, smarter when you're done. I think for a lot of people college is, and it it is often sold this way, it has been sold this way to countless students who have taken on these immense student loan uh, burdens, that it's a time when you find yourself and and find your future in a sense, that you figure out during your college years uh, who you are as a person and what you should do in life, but couldn't, You make the argument that you could also do that just by getting a job, traveling, serving your country, any number of things that don't require loan burdens in the tens, sometimes even over a hundred thousand dollars, but certainly in the tens of thousands of dollars is pretty standard. Uh, the despair, so that's you know, that's on the philosophical side of it. The colleges say, well, you'll. You'll grow, you'll learn, and it'll it'll make you a a more I don't know fulsome citizen or no that's not the word I'd use member of society uh, make you a more uh, a more thoughtful social justice warrior. I always think it's it's funny. A lot of these schools also try to sell everyone on how they tr- they teach leadership. And it's like well, if everyone's a leader, we're gonna have some problems because you do need people that actually take orders and follow. You know, um, but anyway. So there's the, the philosophical notion of college making you a smarter uh, a smarter person who's better able to function uh, in the world as an adult which I contest. There's the uh, but, but the place where you uh, there's the information about whether it improves your critical reasoning skills which shows that the gains are are pretty minimal. And you can figure this out intuitively. I mean does anyone really think we're we're talking about this more and more these days? Does anyone really think that a degree in Women's and gender studies means that you're a sharper mind, that you're smarter. When all said and done, of of, of course not. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe you'll have learned some stuff about postmodernist feminist theory, but that doesn't mean that uh, in a in a critical thinking situation, your mind will be razor sharp, whereas before it was, you know, a dull rusty nail. Uh, this is a lot of this is propaganda from the schools who have taken their role as gatekeepers in our society and just looted, looted our society. I mean, you've got a trillion dollar student loan debt bubble out there. The price of colleges since 2000, so over the course of the last uh, you know decade and a half or so, it's gone up 75%. Of, that's for a four-year degree, 75%. So you're paying almost twice as much for that same degree from uh, you know Buck sexton State which would be an awesome school where everyone gets to read a lot of uh, history of ancient Rome and Greece and they will party a fair amount as well but but the four-year degree but but of course in moderation uh, a four-year degree shouldn't ha- shouldn't cost 75 percent more today than it did uh, and when you look at the earning power, right? So, so, so colleges gotten more expensive. The colleges have leveraged their position. They have really leveraged their uh, connections and their social capital in our society uh, so that, I mean, now really anyone can get student loans. There, there's no more process of, well, maybe you can't pay this back. And that's, that's all. The, the federal government backs all of this now, and they've created this enormous uh, incentive for people. Um, by claiming that if you don't go to college, your, your life will never be what it should have been. I, I, I don't think that that's true. But they've made it so easy to borrow all of this money, and part of the promise, this is another level of this, part of the promise is that you will make more money, that, that sure, you're taking out loans, but it's, it's like people would have said of medical school or law school 10 or 20 years ago, sure, you'll have loans, but you'll be making so much more money as a skilled professional that it's worth it for you to take out those loans. Here's the problem with that. Uh, Also looking at the numbers, the differential between somebody with a college degree and somebody who just goes to high school in terms of earning power is collapsing. It is smaller than it used to be. So you aren't, in fact, getting that financial advantage over uh, your peers. Here's census data. This is from the uh, this is from the census data. It shows that average annual earnings differential between high school and four year college graduates rose sharply to thirty two thousand dollars in two thousand. This is all in constant dollars uh, from nineteen thousand dollars in nineteen seventy five, but then it fell to twenty nine thousand dollars in twenty fifteen. So people are making less in terms of the benefits of a college degree recently uh, than 15 or 17 years ago. And the costs continue to keep going up. So a college degree now means less in terms of your earning power and uh, it means also you're going to probably take out more loans. So now th- then, this is where they oftentimes will uh, then pivot into, well, it depends on the school. And that's absolutely true. And anyone listening, based on what I've seen among my peer group, uh, if you want to go to—and this is particularly true true among graduate schools—if you want to go to Harvard Law School, or rather, if you want to go to law school and you get into Harvard Law School, find a way to pay and go. It's worth it. If you're going to be in a legal profession, it is worth it. Uh, The same is true of undergraduate degrees. The brand matters. Uh, because there are so many more people now who are going to four-year college uh, programs. That means that the overall, this is just a supply and demand issue, right? If if there was a time when, uh, well, there was a time when far fewer people were getting college degrees overall, if you had one, that was more of a, a signal of value, but now, as we see that so many more people, because of the system, because of the ability to borrow and all the other uh, programs that are put in place to encourage people to go to these four-year degrees, uh, the value of having a degree is less. Just the, just the notion of I'm a, I'm a college degree, I have a Bachelor of Arts degree, therefore I'm entitled to the following for salary or compensation. It's just not true. Uh, unless you go to, if you go to an elite school, well, then there's a bigger gap, right? So if you go to Stanford or Harvard or you know, know, name a school that you think is great, yes, your earning power coming out of that school is likely to be considerably higher than somebody who um, you know goes to, just goes to get a high school degree. But uh, looking at what the New York Federal Reserve Bank uh, has pulled together here, forty percent of recent college graduates are under are, are underemployed for a long time. And they often work as, and this is I know this is kind of a stereotype for the millennial generation, but it's a stereotype for a reason because there's a lot of truth to it based in the numbers. A lot of millennials come out of college, four year degree, and they work as Uber drivers or baristas. So they're either driving a car, or making coffee which again are completely fine and honorable professions but if you've got 30 40 70 thousand dollars of debt from your undergraduate program 70 would be high but let's say 30 or 40 uh and you're you're making minimum wage as a barista uh, that's going to be very tough that's a financial burden that will follow you around for quite some time so I, i'm not just bringing this up because well for one, I, I think that our society has become obsessed with the, the undergraduate degree branding, which really means almost nothing and people need to just stop thinking that uh, you know I went to such and, I went to, went to such and such a place, therefore I am you know really smart or I'm really great for whatever reason. It's just not accurate. These schools take people for so many different reasons that have nothing to do with excellence or intellectual ability that they're not the signals to the marketplace that many still think they are. Um, But we need to also look at different ways, I think, of doing this whole higher education thing. I think that people would be, I I wish that I had worked uh, for a year or two in some job before going to college. Because to have to show up on time, do what you're told, get a paycheck, see that paycheck and think to yourself, wow, that's not a lot of money. And to go through that process, I think, would change a lot of perspectives on what to do in college and how to treat that uh, four years, whether you're paying for it for yourself or getting some help from your family or you're even on a scholarship, doesn't matter. Uh, I think people would treat it very differently. I think that we have a college culture of of partying and coddling and they turn into the snowflake factories, Uh, with, of course, all the progressive ideological indoctrination that comes along with it. And the expectations are that they'll come out and there'll be these great jobs waiting for them. And increasingly, that is not the case. And then for some people, they think the answer is, oh, let me just pile a useless... I know people like this in New York. In fact, one of my favorite restaurants here, I've had long talks with a a very nice young woman who is very progressive, and she uh, works at the bar and as a server at a, at a restaurant where I, I frequently go and she has an undergraduate degree and a master's degree and cannot get a job in her field. And I asked, you know, what her, uh, what her field was. And, uh, sure enough she works in journalism or I should say wants to work in journalism. She got a master's degree in journalism. And I'm like, what, what is that all about? Uh, how, how do you, you don't just have an undergrad degree, you have a master's degree and you're having trouble getting a gig. So this is which means the additional debt and time and lost wages and uh, from being out of the labor market that comes with all of that. So th- these are these are huge issues because our society is uh, our, our our workplaces and uh, much of what our lives are supposed to be, uh, much of our lives are supposed to be set in motion, uh, professionally speaking, by where we go to school, and this is increasingly, I think. Um, I wouldn't, it's not a scam, but it's overstated, and it needs more thought and more uh, more questioning. And I, I do believe that people should come out of high school at least a year, maybe two years, do something, and then go to college. Gap year, I know they call it, in Europe. I think it's a fantastic idea. I think people should do it. I wish I had done it. And I made pretty good use of my time in college, I think. But I also was spurred on in, in part by, well, by 9-11. That's what pushed me towards... Uh, joining the CIA and trying to serve my country. So anyway, those are my thoughts on college. I I continue to think it's a a fascinating topic. And given what we're seeing going on at some of these schools, the fact that these degrees aren't even worth what people think they are, people should sit up and and take notice about what's going on in in, uh, academia. All right, we're going to hit a break, team. We'll be right back. That was one of the many chants over at uh, Evergreen, uh, Evergreen State College. You remember we talked about this. They had the day of absence that turned into a mandate for, uh, for minority students, for black students, I believe, in particular, uh, and that was a voluntary. And then they replaced that with the day of uh, white absence, which was, if not mandatory, strongly suggested by non-white students. Uh, and that led to some problems, including a professor who uh, wrote an email saying that uh, he didn't think that he thought that that was an act of oppression in and of itself. And he is, of course, correct. And he's a Bernie Sanders supporting progressive, but he's apparently hasn't completely lost his mind. Uh, I wanted to follow up on this story because, uh, first of all, there have been uh, v- threats of violence now on the campus. There was somebody called in and said that they were going to bring a gun onto campus. Students have been. Uh, wandering the campus grounds with uh, weapons, uh, baseball bats, and there have been demands made by the students at Evergreen uh, that the police become disarmed. Uh, the, yeah, they, they've demanded the, quote, immediate disarming of police services and, quote, mandatory sensitivity and cultural competency training for faculty, staff, administrators, and student employees and the president of this school, George Bridges, has excused protesters from homework and instituted that mandatory sensitivity training. He's creating a new equity center and launching a, quote, forensic investigation to seek criminal charges because of that. Remember that video I just played a second ago? They're upset that people found out how crazy these students are because the videos made it out publicly. And so now they want to try to press charges against whoever posted the, uh, the video. But Wow. Um, this school looks like it receives half of its funding from the state. Evergreen Evergreen State College receives half of its funding from the state, uh, in up in Washington, and it looks like they may they may pull funding. Uh, they, they may have pushed too far here. This looks so bad that state legislatures are thinking about uh, pulling uh, it, pulling its funding uh, of th- thirty two million dollars in state and federal grants absolutely should happen. This place is a cesspool. It does not stand for the First Amendment. It does not stand for uh, the rights of all students. It has become uh, completely overrun with progressive lunacy and shutting it down would send the right message. So I agree. And I hope that's what happens. They should shut it down uh, to borrow a chant from the left. Uh, But I wanted to follow up on Evergreen and just it's getting crazier and crazier over there. Our right, team, we're gonna hit a quick break. I'll be right back. I've thought many times before that I was fortunate to uh, grow up in the in the time period, technologically speaking, that I did, where you you know you had computers and i have i think i've talked before about how playing sid meier's civilization on my brother's computer uh on a friday night when i was in grammar school uh after my parents let me order in you know pizza or something was like among the most joyous and carefree periods of my life uh i remember trying to get into a game called mist but i i never really understood why it was a phenomenon and it didn't really seem like it was that fun to me. But anyway, uh, and when I was in high school, we started to see cell phones. And when I was in college, pretty much everybody had a cell phone, or that it was becoming ubiquitous then. Uh, but even in high school, I think I got my first cell phone when I was maybe a senior in high school. It sounds right. Um, you know, I remember like having to borrow my dad's cell phone a couple of times and be like, you know, son, keep it short. You know, it's like two minutes, a, two dollars a minute, and I, which is crazy now. Right. I mean, do you remember being at a friend's house and having to use the phone and th- the mother would ask? And it wasn't an unreasonable question. Oh, I'm, I'm, Is this a long distance call? Because if you were calling somebody out of state, it, it could be like a, a dollar or two a minute or something. Right. Uh, so. That, that that's just uh, a, a good part of life that's changed just now. We don't have to worry about that, and, and I, I'm, I'm happy for sure that that's the case. But one thing that's nice is that when I was in uh, grammar school, high school, you know, in the 90s, and I'm getting nostalgic for the 90s here on the uh, Buck Sexton show, but in the 90s, uh, it was, at least for me, you could make mistakes and they wouldn't be memorialized for all time in digital form. Right? So, you know, I remember being at house parties when I was in high school and I grew up in New York City. So those parties sometimes had, uh, how do I put this? Uh, it was a fast crowd. I think that's what that's what the, uh, the Jesuits in my high school would have referred to my friends. That's a fast crowd. Uh, there was certainly uh, alcohol and um, stuff that would uh, happen at these parties. Uh, and I didn't have to think, well, there can, be, there can be video taken of this by anybody with a phone. Uh, I didn't think to myself, someone's going to take photos uh, that they're going to re- really regret maybe of themselves, you, know, smoking marijuana or you know drinking shots of soCo and lime, which, is a thing that people still drink, I guess, but once you get past your fraternity or sorority years, I feel like SoCo and lime drops off dramatically in popularity. But the point I'm making is that this was a time period when you didn't have to worry that everything that you were doing was possibly surveilled, I mean even by those around you. Self-surveillance was not a concern in the same way, right? You didn't have to worry you were going to hit the wrong, you know, you're going to hit the the Facebook live button on your phone at the wrong time. And all of a sudden now, you know, dancing around doing your impersonation of Tom Cruise in Risky Business, where he does the lip syncing scene, you know, that that would be live stream for everybody to see. It, you just had a sense that you could make mistakes and they weren't, uh, they, they, they weren't in an in evidentiary format all the time which was a really nice thing as a kid uh, now I don't know how they do it I've many of you are probably sitting at home who have already had the conversation with your 12 year old you know this is a cell phone this can connect you to the whole world this this is anything that you do on this phone will be uh, will, will exist and, and will be retrievable really for all eternity as far as we know uh, I don't even know how you begin to have that conversation that I, I don't have any kids, so I, I really don't know. But uh, to me, it's just I can't imagine having been told that, given that responsibility uh, when I was, you know, a, a young teenager. Never, never mind when I was in high school, having the ability to just sit there and order food and watch videos and do all the things we can do on our phones now. When I was in high school, you know, you had books and you could go play sports and... Uh, you know, you can maybe go hang out in the corner and uh, and maybe try to sneak a cigarette. I, I never smoke cigarettes, but I'm just saying that's what some of the cool kids did. But you certainly couldn't sit there and watch Netflix on your phone and not go to class. I, I don't know how anyone does, deals with it. But, you know, technology is, there's always an up and a down to it, right? There's, uh, well, not all technologies, obviously. Right? Whenever you can save someone's life with a new medical technology, I think that's just an up. But with communication technology, there are trade-offs that we make for sure. Uh, one of the biggest ones that I see right now, and by the way, this is all going to tie into a news story in a second. Sorry, I'm I'm doing a lot of prefacing here. But one of the, the biggest uh, changes that I see is that, oh, it's so convenient. right? People tell me Oh, isn't a great buck? You can, especially for me, because I work in media, you know, you can work from home, you can work remotely, and which is not always true, right? I do my radio show from a studio, I have to go in to do TV at Fox or wherever. I mean, there's, it's not like I can just set up anywhere and you need to have a quiet place, you need to have Wi-Fi, you need to, um, you need to have certain aspects of your work environment all set up and ready to go. But the other side of that is that you never really put work away. Work is always in my pocket. I can always be doing social media posts. I can always be writing something. I can always be taking notes. And I think that there's something to be longed for, and maybe it's just a grass is always greener situation, but there's something that's, uh, that seems r- remarkably nice to me, at least, about when you're not in the office, they'd have to call you and bring you into the office for you to do work, which would limit how often reasonably you could do that. And there was a work-life separation. Work-life balance is now something that you have to establish in pretty much any business, right? If you're a, Whether you're a, a, a plumber or a school teacher or a police officer or an investment banker or whatever it is, you can do work on the go now with your phone. You can schedule things. You can set up appointments. You can do research. You know. So you have to make those distinctions, which is nice, but it also means that you – Aren't automatically uh, you're not automatically carving time out that or car- time is carved out for you I should say we have to work so but but back to the memorializing for all eternity the stupidity of youth I think it's a good thing and I, and I was a well behaved teenager for the most part but I think it's a good thing that you know you could you could say something stupid and maybe people heard you but nobody was recording you. You know, you could you could say you could say something idiotic or, you know, the, the chance of you writing an email. I, I, I remember this. This this was a very uh, distinct thing that happened at my school. Someone wrote a terrible email to a professor um, that uh, and pretended to be somebody else. I did it from someone else's account, if I recall, to get that student in trouble and they figured it out and the, the student was expelled. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, you know. He he put out that email. That email now they could now share that with any school that he's applying to. He was a senior when he got kicked out. Uh, they could share that with any school, and wow, that's so you know that's that's so dumb to have done, and obviously so wrong. Um, and and I just thought that even at the time, I was like, this email thing is going to be great, but it's also going to have consequences. Same thing about social media and Facebook, which came along when I was in college. I was like, this Facebook thing is going to be great, but there's also going to be consequences to it. And here we see a report out of uh, the NBC affiliate in Chicago saying that Harvard University has rescinded uh, admissions offers to 10 students after they posted offensive photos and messages on social media. This is according to the Harvard Crimson, which is their student paper. These are class of 2021 prospective students. To get into Harvard, you've got about a 4% shot, numerically speaking. It's incredibly difficult. Um, A lot of people now that like to give speeches and lecture other people about hard work and academia and, you know, with Harvard degrees who are in their uh, 60s and 70s, just just so you know, I like to point this out, had more like a 30% chance of getting into Harvard by the numbers. So it's ten, it's literally 10 times as hard to get into Harvard now as it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So just so, you know, the next time you're at some speech and you're like, wow, this person has a degree from Harvard and, you know, is eighty eighty five 85 years old. Well, congrats on being a distinguished, uh, distinguished member of society at 85. But getting into Harvard was not the same thing then that it is now that these students lost their admission into Harvard, which is a ticket to. Uh, People opening doors for you and thinking, let's just be honest, right? If you go to Harvard, most of the time people think you're smart. Not always true. And I like to tell you that uh, some of the smartest people I have worked with didn't even go, and I I mean in my careers, in my professions, didn't even go to college. In fact, some of the people that I trust most and think are the wisest and have the best judgment in the entire world didn't go to college. So... The notion of Harvard equals smart is a branding mechanism. It's certainly not a truism. It is not the case that you go to Harvard, you're smart. Uh, and it's certainly not the case that you go to Harvard that you get into Harvard, you're smart. You've got these students who posted this stupid stuff and it was in a, uh, a messaging group for incoming freshmen and they titled it Harvard Memes uh, for Horny Bourgeois teens which is just moronic. And these kids shared a lot of really stupid stuff on here. Um, Really bad. uh, I mean, you know, just the kind of the kind of stuff that you're going to get your admissions offer rescinded for, you know, racist stuff, sexist stuff. Um, And this, I just think, is is a reminder um, that for, for, you know, for young people, their mistakes are out there forever. And, and this is a first in human history. You know, if you if you lived in uh you know Victorian England, if you lived in uh, the, the the Middle Ages, wherever, I mean, if you you know, if you lived in ancient Rome and, you know, you said something really dumb, there may have been rumors about it, there may have been stories, but the Facebook chat wouldn't exist forever. And for kids these days who are applying to these schools, I just feel like Man, it's it's a different world for them. You know, you write some stupid stuff, you can lose your admissions, you can lose your admission offer to Harvard, and it, it just lingers, man. It lingers. It's we are in a world, we are in a massive world of self surveillance, and need to think of it that way. We've got open mics all around us, uh, everything that we type, all that all the different platforms in the digital world uh, can be hacked into, can be shared, can be, you know. It's just—it's all there, right? Our lives are being cataloged in ways, our every action, and in some ways, our every thought, cataloged in ways that uh, would have been completely unthinkable, even even when I was in college. I mean, that was maybe when it started, but no, I got out of college a while ago. I graduated two thousand four. So over the course of less than two decades, we have become a society that is under mass self-imposed surveillance and I I just find it uh, I just think that I think it changes human interaction I think it changes human behavior Uh, I believe it's one of the most uh, one of the most massive shifts in the way we interact in our day-to-day lives in in, in human history really I mean I I think it's profound anyway so these stupid kids lost their admissions offers Uh, that was the story but I had some other thoughts I'll be back in just a second team stay with me You know, team. there's been no shortage of uh, pieces about how Twitter is is ruining America. Really, they mean ruining journalism in America. Uh, And I I have to say that I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. Uh, And I I do tweet and I I find it to be a useful tool as a journalist. But given what's happened in the last couple of days in particular with the administration, uh, with President Trump, Many of the problems that this White House has had to uh, deal with um, have come from the president's usage of Twitter. Many of the things that have uh, taken up days of the news cycle, whether it's talking about wiretaps or talking about any number of things, have been Trump tweets. I know people like them because it's a direct form of going right to the people. But let's be clear, the president can call a press conference anytime he wants, and the whole country will watch and can see it online. Uh, there's no shortage of ways for the president to reach out to the American people. So I do wish, and I'm seeing finally some of the very strong Trump supporters out in the media, I'm seeing some of them are finally willing to say, you know what, uh, maybe maybe the president should just, should just pull back on the Twitter a little bit. Uh, it's a little too much sometimes and it creates a mess that his communications uh, wing will then have to deal with, and and they look silly because when the president tweets one thing and, and they're saying another, it makes them look like they can't do their jobs, which is not really fair. I don't think this is a really big deal, but I, I do think that it would be worthwhile for the president to finally back off the Twitter. I also think we're at the point in the presidency now when... Uh, I don't want to hear any more of the, well, he's not Hillary. I know he's not Hillary, which is great, uh, but it's time to get some stuff done. This summer is going to fly by, and if there is not a legislative achievement uh, during this presidency to point to, the Democrats are going to be salivating over their prospects in the midterms. And if we if we think that it's tough for Trump now, imagine if, if even one uh, of the sides of Congress goes Democrat. Imagine if he loses the House or the Senate to the Democrats, the obstructionism will become a a, an article of faith. I mean, it won't just be a mantra. It'll be their reason for existence for the Democrats. So there needs to be a focus on on getting some things done legislatively, not just through executive order. And and as a broader point on Twitter, journalists, uh, I see so much of this. They there's a pressure to be nasty and snarky and to be a jerk on Twitter to get attention that has corrupted even some otherwise, I think, very uh, reasoned and thoughtful uh, writers, thinkers, uh, media people out there. And I just think that instantaneous sharing of thoughts with the whole world outside of, you know, I I do a show for you for three hours. It's extemporaneous. But I've thought all day about what I'm going to say, and in each break I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. Uh, I, I don't think that people should just just let it, let it rip off of Twitter all the time the way that they do. I've seen so many uh, journalists get into a lot of trouble, of course, for tweeting out something that was a little offensive or maybe was really offensive. I mean, private citizens have ruined their careers and become completely socially ostracized because of this. Uh, and it's not helpful. I think it's not helpful for the president of the United States, too. It really does bring out uh, the worst in a lot of folks. And it, it turns into a, a constant running version of the comment section on a news article, which if you've ever felt brave enough to just check that out, uh, you go into the comment section, especially on, on a contentious news item, and all, you will see you will see people write things that you know they would never in a million years <laughs> say to someone's face but they will write the nastiest stuff. Now, the other side of that is occasionally there is a a comment in the comment section that you're like that is the most insightful and or funniest thing I've read in a long time, you know, who is random random dude 75275 uh, but generally speaking uh, the, the internet has become a well, these social media platforms on the internet have become uh, loudspeakers for not just the nast some of the nastiest elements, uh, but also it brings out a-, a bad side in people and some of my uh, even some former colleagues of mine that I see not at the blaze but at other places that I have worked. You see people well, I mean one of them called the president a piece of blank. So I don't have to be you know CNN has had some people that have just gone off the rails on Twitter recently. So I, I just I, I, I'm very of two minds. People tell me to tweet more. They want me to tweet more. It would be good for me to tweet more. And I'm just like, you know, I need some peace. I need some me time throughout my day, not just constantly sharing every uh, even witty quip that may come to mind. But, um, but facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is an awesome place to go and hang out. Side note, shameless plug. Uh, so that's where all the nice people are. You can hang out at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton Uh, Team, thank you for joining me today for the show. Uh, An honor and a pleasure, as always. Uh, Please do download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now in the search bar on iTunes. Excited to be with you back again tomorrow night. Until then, my friends, no matter what comes your way, and these days, we all know, it can be a lot of different stuff. We've got some crazy things happening in the world. But no matter what comes your way, my friends, shields high.